Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. One week away from the 2023 Jakarta pre-opening, Formula E has never done so well. In this context, we received Harry Brown, Strategy Director of the Championship, to unveil the crazy decade since its inaugural season in 2014. From a small startup to a huge sports organization, Formula E has managed to build a solid business and expansion model, and you are going to know how in this new Little Corner episode. Welcome, Harry. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I know the I know the weeks are busy for you these days. So thanks a lot for taking an hour to to um, speak with us and and hopefully make a very interesting recording for our for our audience. Yeah. Hopefully. No. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Terrific. Um, first things first. Can you give uh, Can you give our auditors a, a quick introduction of yourself, your role? Um, would love to know more about Harry. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, I'm strategy director at Formula E. I, um, I'm a Londoner, so I'm now working just up the road from where I went to school. So my, my path hasn't taken me too far. Um, but prior to that, um, after leaving university, I, I worked in uh, strategy consulting for about five years at a couple of different firms, um, latterly Altman Solon, which is one of the biggest TMT-focused consulting firms out there. Um, and after about five years of that, I decided that I wanted to do something that I think aligned a bit more closely to what I was interested in and my passions. Um, and so those really are, are sports and music in my life. So it's very lucky that when I was looking around then, the, the job at Formula E came up and that's where I've been for the last five and a half years at this point. Nice. Were you a sports mechanic fans or what's your background with sports? Uh, well, uh, playing from, as a youngster and a big fan of, of, kind of football, cricket, rugby and, and whatever's on the TV, really. Um, and then um, you know, Formula One used to be, I would say I was a bit of a lapsed Formula One fan from, from my youth. Um, and then have obviously got much more back into the motorsports world since I joined Formula E and become a big Formula E fan as well. And then latterly with the, the rise of F1, it's impossible not to, to talk to your friends about F1 at the moment as well. So, yeah, fully, fully back into that world now, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Be between the fact that the competition is now great again and that uh, just the, their content strategy and digital strategy and their right strategy is just uh, incredibly interesting. But so is Formula E's. Um, and, and, and we'll get down to that in a, in a few minutes. But um, tell us a little bit more about your journey going from the sports services side to the between startup and sports league, it's a bit of a mix. Um, tell us a bit about that journey, what you like on one side, what you like on the other, and what led you to actually uh, join Formula E on a very exciting project, yet it was very new when you joined them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, there are a lot of things that, that consulting has to, to, you know, to offer young uh, people starting out in their career, I think. And It, for me, it was it was a great way to learn a lot of business skills, uh, to to really learn all of these in quite a high pressure environment and travel around the world, working on on interesting projects, getting to 
familiarize yourself with some of the the big questions that that some big telcos and, and investment funds are trying to answer. Um, and I think it's it's a great learning environment for that reason. What it wasn't offering me was um, the chance to uh, engage with questions and, and industries that, that really excited me, or at least not all of the time. So that was really what was what was driving the decision behind trying to find something that would excite me a bit more. And you know, I've been incredibly lucky that, that when I since when I've joined Formula E, a lot of the questions that I'm trying to answer uh, in my role are the types of things that I would happily go to the pub with my friends and debate over a beer, you know, and, and conversations I'd like to have in that forum. So it's, it, it's, it's really, I think, a, a pretty privileged position to be in where you find the job and, and the content of what you do so interesting that, that it's the type of thing that you're, you're happy to talk to bore your friends about. Um, and yeah, no, that's not to say it's all, it's all that interesting and glamorous, but, you know, it's, it's a rule of thumb. You know, I think that's been an amazing place to be and, and to be on that journey. Yeah, what you're telling us right now is that your job was preparing yourselves for the debates and capturing data for when you went to the pub with your friends and you would just beat them uh, because <laughs> your whole work was about <laughs> understanding what was going on and pull the, the right uh, numbers and the right debates. Uh, that's a fun one. Um, and yeah, and, and, and just like moving over to that. So yeah, you, you were missing a bit of a, I guess, daily excitement, um, w which is what you were looking to find with Formula E. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's Formula E has changed a huge amount as well since I've been there. So I, I joined in season four. Um, we're now in season nine. So, so as I said, I've been here about five and a half years. Um, and when I joined, there were around about 60 or 70 employees. And now we're three times that. So we're over 200 today. And that has meant that the, the company in many ways is unrecognizable from being what really did feel like a startup and a lot of very entrepreneurial um, and you know, really driven uh, people who, who really delivered in, in their area and were really focused and, and really strong at that to being now a company that feels a lot more grown up in many ways. It, it has um, a lot more um, subject matter experts, I would say, used to working in Um, established sports and, and also challenger brands, but bringing a lot of experience from elsewhere and, and, and used to working in a way that, that feels a bit more collaborative and, and, and a bit more an emphasis on planning rather than delivering and, and making stuff happen and, and matching it up out of nowhere, which people, you know, were, were incredible at doing and, and extremely inspirational for doing so as well. But as I said, it's been a bit of a change in emphasis. And it's also changed what the, the role of strategy has been. Um, because when I first started, there was I was the first and, and only dedicated strategy employee. Um, and so I would have to, to think about questions on my own and, and trying to come up with approaches and feed that back to the organization. Whereas now we have so many different leaders um, who all have strategic thinking ac across the departments that my role is that it's actually um, the projects are much more commonly done Uh, in partnership with with people from various other teams and it's more about leveraging the expertise that we have across the organization and, and figuring out how we can uh, work together to create the most impact as a company rather than necessarily kind of sitting in a, in a silo and strategy and, and trying to answer questions in, in isolation. Yeah and that's an interesting one in terms of the growth of the startup cycles overall like who's a right fit for an organization at what time of the growth and how you readapt with time and and and, and facing uh, the challenges of massively hiring in a short amount of time we we're discussing it right before this uh this session so it, it's an interesting one and i'm assuming 
every year, every year feels big, right? Uh, as an organization that's still a pretty early stage and you face so many things, launching the competition and then COVID and then back to relaunching. And this year, two major things, launching in new territories, and it's going to be the first year of your Gen 3 cars, right? Tell us a bit more about that. What's a Gen 3 car, which territories, and why strategically addressing those markets? Yeah, so since I started Formula E, this is without question the most that's changed in any off-season. Um, as you mentioned this, we have the new car, um, and this is our, so our cars at the moment run on four-year cycles, technology cycles. We introduced a new car this year that we really set out with the intention uh, alongside the FIA to have the ambition that it would be better in the car, the previous car in every single dimension. So we wanted it lighter and it's about 60 kilograms lighter than, than the previous car. We wanted it quicker and the, the top speed of this one is now 200 miles an hour. Quick question, 60 kilos, how heavy is a car? Uh, this, it's now 860, I believe. Okay. Give Didn't or take. Trick you, but yeah, more or less, yeah. <laughs> Between 800 and 900 kilos. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, and um, yeah, capable now of 200 miles an hour. We wanted it more powerful and, and the uh, peak energy output or power output is now 350 kilowatts. It was 250 kilowatts. We removed the front brake, so all of the all of that energy goes straight back through regen, straight back into the battery. Now the car generates forty percent of all of the energy it uses during the race, which, which is unbelievable. We wanted it to be capable of fast charging, which it now is, and that obviously has implications on on the rules and and how that's implemented in a way that makes sense for the sporting product. And we also, with everything with Formula E, we wanted to do it in the, the most sustainable way possible. And, and we say this is the most sustainable electric car ever created. So so all of that was going on with the car. <laughs> that was one piece of it. We had three new teams joining. Um, Maserati, who, our first Italian manufacturer, so that, that was huge for us. McLaren, who you know really need no introduction with their motorsport heritage. And also we had Apt Cupra join as well. And Apt have been part of Formula E for a while, bringing Cupra as a new manufacturer as well. So then we had new teams. And then, as you mentioned as well, we, we had new races. And so uh, Hyderabad um, in India was was an amazing success. And that was our, our first race in India. And it's amazing to be able to bring Tier 1 Motorsport back into to India for the first time in a while. Uh, we went to Cape Town for the first time, which was, again, a, an unbelievable event cities that get much more iconic than, than Cape Town. It's amazing to be able to race around the stadium there. Um, Sao Paulo uh, in Brazil is obviously a huge motorsports market. And um, it's. I know that since before I joined, we've been trying as Formula E to get a race in Brazil and we've come close a couple of times. And it was really the culmination of years of hard work to, to get that done. And then later in the season, we were racing in Portland. Um, so, and then all of... Attached to all of that as well, this year we had, we refreshed the brand and relaunched that with a new logo and, and visual and, and audio system as well around that. So really, it was, it was a huge amount going on. And the, the main challenge was really to make sure that we, we knew we had so many steps being taken forward in so many parts of the business, but to make sure that we were delivering on that as a, as a full package that felt joined up and, and maximized each of the individual elements it was really crucial. And it it meant that when we went to Mexico for the start of the season for the first race, there was a lot of nervousness, if I'm honest. There was there was a, a lot of concern that, you know, any one of these parts might fall down and 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 bring yeah. the rest of it down with it. Um, 
But actually, you know, the, the moment the cars went out on the track and we had a sellout crowd with 40,000 fans in there, everyone saw what it was capable of and, and everything worked and, and it was a, a big relief and everyone really calmed down, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And just the fact that you're able to implement in those territories says a lot about the global interest, right? But because going to South America, to the US, to Africa and to Asia and, 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 and territories that are so strategic for any sports organization says a lot on the on the success so far and so it's very clear i mean three core elements right you have to meet you have to have fandom right you have to have people that are willing to spend some time like the like the content and spend some money also around a competition so that has been achieved technical performance is obviously one of the key elements of formula e show what you know um, renewable energy and more green energy can do in terms of performance and just the overall green aspect of the competition from a marketing standpoint are very crucial what are the other key elements of the visual uh, of the vision between uh, behind formula e um and uh, and where are you at with that whole strategy yeah so taking it right back to, to when we started um our founder alejandro agag who who's well known in the in the motorsports industry he he said that formula e could have been founded by one of two people it, it could have been founded by an environmentalist, or it could have been founded by a motorsports guy, as, as he puts it. And he, you know, he's a real motorsports guy. But what he saw is this real opportunity in, in the industry with with the growth of EVs coming. And, you know, now nine years on, we're, we're right in the middle of it. He saw a real opportunity to, to be the first to launch an electric series and, and capitalize on all of these macro trends that, that were going to be supporting it uh, into the next, into the, you know, few next few decades most likely um and and the vision from the start was really always to demonstrate that sustainability can live alongside high performance and and fun you know and and you don't necessarily need to make large sacrifices in, in order to live more sustainably and to make sustainable choices and and actually that was really going to formula E's core to, to bring those two things together you know now our mission, I think, is broadened out. But you know, now we we understand that there's there's more that we can do than than just accelerate adoption of EVs. We we really want to accelerate sustainable human progress. Um, but that um that core uh combination of of the racing and the reason of, of performance and and sustainability you know, that those that's really still at the core of, of everything we do at Formula E. Got it. Got it. And, and, and starting to dive into the whole business element of things. So we understand you were just mentioning that there were 40,000 people in Mexico. So that is that about an average of the attendance at, um, at each of your events? Or what is the average attendance? So it, it depends a lot on the, on the venue. Um, Mexico is, is an awesome place for us because it, it has, um, is right in the middle of the city, which is, you know, really crucial part of our, of our USP and our, our brand promise, if you like. Um, but it's also um, there. There are a lot of grandstands there that, that we can use and fit. Uh, in Berlin, we build everything on a on the disused uh, airport at the Tempelhof Airport, um, and it means that we the scale of, of what we can build there is just slightly more constrained, um, and and so we can't actually fit forty thousand people in uh, each each place we go. In Berlin, we we raced on the Saturday and Sunday, and we had thirty four thousand fans over the weekend. Um, so yeah, just, just under twenty thousand per per day, and we find that you know d depending on the venue, we end up somewhere between twenty and 
and uh, 40,000 fans in Mexico being our biggest race. Got it. And if we move over to the, not in presence, but to the media aspect of things and to the media rights side of things, how is it, how is it organized internally and where, what are your major sources of revenue between D2C, between selling the different rights, between just grabbing overall reach on certain uh, free channels? Can you help us understand a little bit how Formula E exists throughout the world uh, in terms of its media rights? Yeah, so the I mean, we have 40, I think, broadcast partners um, broadcasting us in around 150 countries around the world. So we have a, a large, impressive footprint. The, the strategy at the moment is very much... Um, it'll be pretty obvious to do on this thing, but it, you know, it's really all about the growth of, of, of the business, the growth of the fan base, the growth of the audience. So the, rather than looking for the biggest check in media at the moment, really what we're trying to do is to find broadcast partners who, who really believe in, in the long-term potential of Formula E will put us on their core channels to, to expose us to as, as large an audience as we can. And that's obviously really vital for us to build a fan base, but it's also really vital for us to support our teams and manufacturers who who invest in in participating in Formula E and our sponsors as well who who are obviously uh, paid to to make sure that their association with Formula E is is shown to as many people as possible and, and the storytelling around that. Um, in terms of where the audience comes from, much of the audience is is as you'd expect in core motorsports markets: UK, Germany, France, Italy, um, US, China as well, increasingly. Um, but then also what we find is when we go racing in um, in the likes of Indonesia or, or Brazil or, or even Cape Town for the first time this year as well, we find that we can build, we can create um, really great broadcast relationships off the back of those pinnacle races, which means and, and bring a lot of audience to all of the races across the season off the back of those broadcast relationships that we've built. So last year when we went to Jakarta for the first time, we found that Indonesia became one of our, our biggest broadcast markets in terms of audience, really as a result of, of, the, of the fact the fans really brought bought into the product that was bringing tier one racing to their country for the first time on, on four wheels. They have a big, they have a big uh, motorcycling heritage there as well. Um, and and that meant that off the back of the strength of that broadcast relationship, we we're able to to really grow the uh, grow our fan base in Indonesia, and that was a great success story. So it's, it's a bit of a combination of, of those core yeah. markets where, where you'd, you'd see it traditionally, and, and then growth markets where we are starting to make a bigger splash as well. Got it. And just overall, in terms of the was the the the, the percentage of the media rights piece in the whole overall finance finances of, uh, of Formula E, like what? Part, you know, what percentage does it represent in the overall um, Formula E organization? It, it's a single digit percentage at the moment. Uh, you know, our, our main revenue streams I mentioned are uh, absolutely sponsorship. Um, yeah. And then uh, we also uh, take um, another significant revenue stream is from governments and, and local promoters who will uh, work with us to, to take the racing to their country as well. And, and so that's the, the kind of second biggest category. Okay, interesting, and it shows that the, the the organization is healthy because it's not too it's not dependent on media rights. Obviously, there are other um, uh, investments coming from different places, but but I'm assuming there's still a challenge to grow that revenue on the media rights side of things. Ah, oh, absolutely, and and you know we if you look at any tier one sport, and th that's our ambition to become a tier one sport. Um, a big part of the pie is always coming from from media rights, and and we know that's where we want to get to. Yeah. The, you know, one of the factors in, in, in 
in whether you can get a, a large check from a media company, you need to have that fan base that, that's willing to to watch to fund the ad ad model or or to subscribe to to watch to to get the subscription revenue. And you know, yeah. we our priority is really to make sure that we have a fan base that's big enough that that we can start to dictate those kinds of fees. At the moment, as I say, the strategy is all about growing that fan base, and and for that, we we want to work with broadcast partners who will give us great production promote us and put our product in in a really prominent place on their on their platforms used a lot of p's there for some reason but <laughs> maybe that'll help yep um and so interesting piece and because the the, the words the, the the strategy um obviously something that's very important and very key to your own personal role what does your day-to-day -day look like in terms of how do you manage to deploy a strategy in the short term how do you manage to deploy the strategy in the long term what does a typical day look like for you Yeah, it's it's um, heavily variable, um, which um, means I'm about to give a long answer. Uh, the, the there's I would say about half of the work is is really thinking about traditional strategy topics. So, which should our core markets be for growth? And at the moment, been working a lot on on our longer term calendar strategy, meaning which which races should we be adding in and, and when uh, in which markets. Um, If we ever think about doing um, any M&A or if we're looking at um, uh, supporting the board or shareholders with any topics that you know they think we need to be focusing on, that those are the types of more traditional strategy projects that, that I spend about half of my time on. Um, the other half is, you know, we're, we're still a small company growing a lot. So I actually um, I'm involved with making sure that the company is running in, in an efficient way and, and that all of the various teams and departments are all pulling in the same direction. Um, and, and so that, um, you know, making sure that the, there's information flows within the company uh, uh, operating as they should and, and everyone's talking together, you know, that's, that's you know, a big um, part of the role as well. And then there's also a part of it as well, which is, is more about building new stuff. Um, and so um, a couple of years ago, we didn't really have a, an esports or sim racing platform. So I spent a lot of time, Uh, working with the gaming team on that. More recently, we've um, we've put together a B 2 B conference, which uh, helps to position Formula E as a thought leader and and help, gives our teams and partners a a platform to talk about their involvement in Formula E to a different audience. and And so I'll be more involved in in creating that and building up a proof of concept or a pilot event, and then. If it's something that the organization sees value in going forwards, then we'll start to staff that up in a way that means that uh, me and my team will be able to take a step back and, and focus on the next thing. Is it fair to say that? So it's strategy, but somehow it is innovation as well, right? In terms of, or at least that the whole process thing is one thing that's fundamental in every high, you know, high speed growing organization. That's really interesting, but you can go as wide as, you know, e-sport and b2b conference organization it feels like anything that you guys are trialing also falls onto your uh, under your hood yeah exactly I, uh, there you know there are countless projects that, that are being run across the business by by people that aren't me as well so you know i don't, don't want to take you know, credit for all of it um but, you know there's uh it's it's been it's a great role to be able to get involved in a lot of really variable topics and, and get a lot of experience in different parts of the business which is, is you know it's really fantastic yeah And from your position, where do you see the biggest potential for growth still uh, for, for Formula E in terms of there's the extension of the market, there's growing the revenues that makes a lot of sense. But conceptually, where do you where would 
where should the focus go towards uh, as far as Formula E data, acquisition of first party data? What are your sponsors looking for that are financing most of your model? What are the key areas that you're looking to to grow the organization? We we have a um, a great business intelligence team that that gives us a lot of data, and you know part of the part of the sell for Formula E and part of the reason that I think everyone should be bullish on on its prospects is that there are so many people at the moment out there in the world who describe themselves or as motorsports fans or have some interest in in motorsports have a what we call a progressive mindset in the sense that they're you know probably uh, early tech adopters or you know they they care about sustainability and, and social sustainability who either don't know about Formula E yet or have never engaged with the Formula E product yet. Um, and what we find is, is when we actually are able to reach these people or we were able to put our product in front of them, that it, they're really sticky. And, it, you know, they're very quick to engage from becoming aware to, to having some kind of engagement to becoming fans. Um, and so to answer your question and really directly, the the role is to continue to to have an amazing product such that, when we are able to reach these people and put them into the top of the funnel, they continue to be really sticky and, and they become fans that, you know, we, we will then, as you say, we can start to get first party data. We can start to um, monetize them in various ways, either directly or, or through our, our sponsors. So, um, you know, that's, that's the sell. And, and, you know, we, we know that the, the job is, is really just beginning you know there's there's so many people still for us to to reach and convert so that's you know what, what the challenge is and it's also what's, what's so exciting about it yeah so there's a lot of motor motor fans that you ha actually haven't reached to date that you still have in your target that's an interesting one and overall it it, it it to open it up to a wider topic of the industry right there's a lot of conversations right now between selling your rights or going d2c right one of the big ones there's a big conversation right now around the premier league and a platform and what could that, that what could that entail and comparing it to the american model with the nfl league pass and the nba league pass uh, sounds like that data is going to be at the forefront of your strategy uh that the organizations that are sponsoring you must have some interest in knowing their audiences because it's very key for the future of that segment of the industry, I would say, in terms of green and renewable energies and, and, and the involvement of everybody in that process. What is your opinion on that? And what are the mechanisms that you're putting in place to capture first party data? I don't want to talk quite yet about the whole fan participation element that we'll get back to. Uh, but tell us more about what, what you guys are doing in order to actually know those users better. You're saying that your product is sticky, but how do you measure it as well? Yeah, I, so, so one thing I didn't touch on, uh, uh, another thing that changed over the off-season is we completely revamped and, and relaunched our website and our app as well. So um, we we went from, well, it, it's moved on massively over the off-season. Um, and what we've, we now have the capability to have um, logins, to, have to make sure that people are able to properly track our fans that come to our site. Um, and that we we're early in the, you know, you compared us, well, you, you raised some other kind of US sports leagues there that they're a long way ahead of us. And you know, there's no question. Um, and so we, we really need to make sure that we, we're moving very quickly to, to start to uh, have a digital product that, that matches, you know, our ambitions. And then that's, you know, we've got a lot closer to, to that over the off season. Uh, 
we're looking at, at doing things like gated content for for people that log in and subscribers at the moment we don't have that um we have a, a digital engagement project product sorry on, on our app that's the predictor that uh, that we relaunched for this year that you have to have a login for so that you can play prediction elements and and we'll bring people back to the app by by giving them push notifications to ask them to make a prediction which in turn works as a tune-in product or tune-in prompt because people understand that our qualifying sessions on our the race session is on um so we're doing a lot of things like that as i say we're really on our on our journey there and you know there'll be a lot more to come um in the the digital product roadmap for us uh over the next year um and they're the team working hard on that um but it, it's it's definitely you know come a long way even in the last 12 months for us in terms of the the quality and the depth of, of the digital offering that we can have on our own platforms to, to bring fans in and as you say to to start to understand more about them on the broadcast side um we we look at Obviously, we look at the number of the cumulative audience, so that's the key thing for us. Um, what we're also starting to really focus on more and more is the the quality of that audience and how uh, what proportion of them we're engaging from you know a one minute view to a three minute view, or what's the overall view duration that, a, that your average viewer has of the product. Um, and you know that that for the broadcast team is one of their most important KPIs because they really want to make sure and understand that the fans that are coming across our product are sticking around because they they're excited by what they see and, and they want to, to continue watching. And that's really the, the, the market they use to understand how well the, the TV product is landing with the fans. Gotcha. Um, and it's interesting because opening up the session, we're discussing of the multiple periods that you've gone through at Formula E uh, with the with the various differences and approaches and the various stages of the organization, moving from a small, lean startup to a, starting to be a big, you know, big sports organization. Um, were those perspectives very different five years ago than they are now? On you know, like do you, if we had asked you five years ago. Uh, what would your work look like? What would your job look like? And what would your key strategic uh, topics look like? Would they have gone in this direction, you think? Would, would you have predicted that you would be doing what you're doing now? <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question. I, I think probably the, the biggest mindset shift, and, and it's changed a lot of, of my work as well, is that there there is increasingly a real understanding that There's there's no shortcut to to becoming you know a huge overnight success. It happens very rarely, and and you know the way that you build a fan base is actually by having a great TV product, so that you, so that people or you know not necessarily TV, but a, a great content product, so that when people are watching your the the crown jewels that you have, which for us is the race, they they'd love it and they want to watch it again. You know that that's one thing. And if they come to the event, you know, which is already you know, a subset of people who who will be engaging with the product, they have an amazing time. They want to come back and they want to tell everyone about it. Those, you know, are really our key touch points. And and there's no substitute for getting those spot on. You know, really nailing it so that these people that that engage can be your biggest advocates. That is not to say that there isn't um, value in creating one-off peaks or bursts in in awareness and and 
creating fame by doing something newsworthy. And we actually just launched a, a brand film um, for season nine that I encourage everyone to go watch. It, it's uh, it's really striking, you know, really amazing. We, we drop a Gen 3 car out of a plane um, and it, it looks amazing. You know, it, it really, really cinematic, high, high value. The idea behind that is is to really get people talking and, and and to create some kind of virality so that people start to be aware of Formula E and, and want to find out more. These things these things are great, and you know we have a campaign that will continue to leverage that over the course of the season. But if you're getting people through the door, there's no substitute for having an amazing product once they get in there. And and I think that's over the last few years, there's really been an emphasis on making sure that the product itself is is really world class so that when we do get people finding out about us they they want they don't it's just stop right. at that point they, yeah. they stick around yeah 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 the, the, the whole you, you have to have your funnel of acquisition but the retention element is obviously something fundamental and so that brings us to the topic of the whole fan engagement piece right you were saying how on your platform you have a predictor game to to keep the people coming back between the actual events right which is always very core to to organizations Um, but you had a, an element of fan participation uh, back in the days that you actually removed. I would love to know a little bit more about it, what it was, why the decision was made to actually remove it, because it was an innovative move back then. It would still kind of be an innovative move today uh, because not that many organizations are actually putting fan participation at the center of their thoughts of how to organize the sport. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so it was it was a product um, called Fan Boost, um, and the it was implemented right from the start of Formula E, uh, and just removed uh, very recently. the The concept behind it was that uh, as a fan, you could vote for your favorite driver and the top five drivers who received the most votes in in the run up to a race would receive a power boost at some point during the race. Um, which, as you say, was you know incredibly innovative uh, pretty disruptive for, for a sport to allow a fan to have a direct consequence about what was happening on the pitch or you know in, in our case on track um and probably people if people are listening to this and if people are, are thinking about it for the first time there'll probably be about 50 of people being like that's awesome i, I love it like <laughs> what, what a great idea and the other half thinking That's not sport. You know, what 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 on earth are they thinking? That's 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 ridiculous. And, and it really did have that marmite effect. Um, and you know, for us in, in one sense, particularly early on, that was a real pro because it was something that was newsworthy that would, would allow us to, to break into to um news outlets that we might not otherwise be able to reach and, and for people to hear a bit about Formula E and instantly to understand that this is a sport that was doing things in an innovative way that, that was a bit different to, to its competitors. Yep. Um, the, other, the other side to it is that, you know, it gave us great digital fan engagement. As you mentioned, it had fans coming back to vote. Uh, we had tens of thousands of people voting each race, which was a really valuable uh, exercise for us in, in gathering first-party data, as you mentioned. The cons to it, and you know, parts of the reasons why we we removed it in the end. I mentioned earlier that, well, the first thing is that for all the people that that did like it a lot, there are a lot of people that didn't, and there are a lot of people who would find out about Formula E and and find out about Fan Boost and think, okay, that's not for me because this is it's not a sport that's taking itself seriously, which you know is not fair, but you know, can understand why people would think that. Um, 
and as I mentioned as well, we've over the last few years, there's been a real focus on making sure that the sporting product is has a huge amount of credibility and, and legitimacy in, in in the motorsports world. And we really wanted to make the the sport speak for itself and, and the quality of racing that we have speak for itself. Um, and Fan Boost, I think, ended up being a bit of a distraction to that. The other thing, the other two things I think that have changed since we launched it, which made it was no longer quite as relevant for us, is that um, we launched in season five something called Attack Mode, um, which is uh, a, again a really innovative piece of um, uh, element to our, to our sport, uh, which has all of the cars drive offline into an Attack Mode activation area where they unlock um, some inc- increased power for for a set number of minutes. And that is, you know, right out of the gaming copybook. It's it's really innovative. It looks great on TV, um, and it creates a power differential between the cars, which results in more overtaking. Which you know is is ticking a lot of boxes. Um, when we just one question: How what, was the reasoning? Every driver has it, or how do you define which driver benefits from it? Yeah, so so every driver has it, which means that it's. It's a bit fairer than you know fan boost, which could be seen potentially as being a popularity contest and therefore unfair. Um, so yeah, all, all of the drivers have, have the same access to it. Um, and what we found is that when we had attack mode and fan boost, the product was starting to get a bit cluttered and a little bit hard to understand uh, because there were these various boosts going on. Whereas you know if we had just attack mode that would be something that we could focus on a bit more explain a bit better explain the strategy behind it um and by and be kind of less distracted by by the number of elements on there and the second thing as well is that you know we're no longer reliant on fan boost as the primary source of our digital engagement with fans um as i mentioned we've grown our digital platforms we've we've grown the content we create on third-party social platforms um, and so fans are coming to us anyway and hearing about us anyway. And, and we don't necessarily need to have that kind of gamified feature as being the the yeah. sole uh, reason for people to come to us during a race weekend. Yeah, ultimately, the gamification element works well in your digital engagement. But the, 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 the gamification element to influence the sports was what was perceived as counterproductive. It, exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's... Probably just just to dwell on the sport for a little bit. I mean, we've, we're averaging well over a hundred overtakes per race at the moment in in a forty five minute race. So you know, there's there's a lot going on. I, I think in Berlin over the two races we had one hundred and ninety overtakes, or maybe that was even just in one race. So in one race we had one hundred and ninety overtakes with, with eight different leaders. So there's a huge amount going on. <laughs> so yeah. you know, it's, I, I think there was it was really the decision taken to say. No, this this isn't something we we need anymore. You know, the racing is is really high quality. There's a lot to to cover as it is. You know, we, we don't need to add in additional elements that might confuse the overall narrative. Yeah, got you. Um, opening it up to the to, to the wider topics, uh, it's funny because one of the elements you mentioned was the history. You know, the the element of history of tradition of sports versus those innovative sports, and the fact that. Um, you were saying that some people were coming to your sport and saying, oh, there's a fan boost. It's not a serious sport. What are your thoughts in terms of how do you actually create a product that's adapted to the new generations without actually hurting the older generations? We're starting to, to enter the older generation, I would say. But um, how, how do you find the right balance be- between 
what the older audiences want in terms of what typically sport what sport typically represents to them and the younger generations yeah it, it's a really interesting topic i we're very lucky being a young sport that's known for being innovative that we can pr probably take more risks than than the more established sports um we in fact that's that's what our fans and it's what our teams it's what our sponsors expect from us that we are going to be pushing the boundaries of of what what you know is is relevant to the sporting fan and and focusing on on what's relevant to the younger fan today so i think informally we're quite privileged in, to be able to to really kind of push the boundaries a bit there and um, that said you know it, it's always it's always a balance we we find at the moment we we we're changing a lot each season um, and so there's a lot for even our most engaged fans to keep track of and so we're, we're really thinking very carefully about what we can you know the, the value in, in keeping some consistency across seasons as well um last year we changed the qualifying format um which was a, a huge success we, we switched to a knockout style um format which which has races going up head to head in in one-to-one -one duels and that was amazing you know and it, it's been great to it's really i think the privilege of being a young sport that you can make a one change to a format um which you know people aren't necessarily wedded to the old one you people understand there's going to be some change year on year that increased the audience by 50 percent in the qualifying format because it was you know what was so much better and and people you know really really embrace that yeah for every one of them you know it's possible that we might make a change that might not work so well and it just needs to be really clear with our with our business intelligence team with, with talking to our teams and partners the ecosystem what's working what's not what can we keep the same what needs to change and and just be really structured and, and rigorous in, in how we go about each of those steps alongside the fia of course who, who have a, a key role in in implementing the sporting product yeah it sounds like there's not one right answer right but how may how maybe how do you trigger the interest of the people yeah the, just by having some consistency year from one year to the other it's an interesting one because the way formula one worked and attracted the new the new audience i would say so obviously there's everything they did on long format content on certain you know, very well-known platforms mm -hmm. there's also the format of the competition that changed and attracted a lot of new fans I'm not, I don't, I don't know it well enough to know if some of the old fans actually disappeared. Uh, but it's an interesting one not to, to strike the right balance between wanting to, to make sure that you don't overwhelm people. Uh, yet they probably want some change without even knowing it. Uh, definitely. I, people, I think, always overestimate uh the the reaction they're going to have when when there's a change in in something that they, they like or love and they most of the time will, will probably not see the value in, in a change and and uh then you know like it more or, or not dislike it as much as they think they're going to yeah. um you know that said i'm probably one of those people now i i'm when it comes to my sporting products that i watch as a fan i am someone that really values consistency and history and legacy and all, all these things and and you know having if someone starts playing around with a sport that I really like, you know, that, that frustrates, frustrates me as much as the next person. So, you know, I class myself as, as a bit of a sporting traditionalist in that sense. So, you know, it's always a really interesting balance in my, my kind of personal approach to, to sport versus, 
you know what our fans and, and what Formula E is expected to be, which is super innovative. So it's yeah, sort of really interesting balance and, and one that is, as you say, there's no right answer and there's always pros and cons to each of these decisions you have to make. Yeah. I feel like I'm in the, uh, the, the same phase of my life where I feel like I'm getting at the age where you get romantic about certain things and not <laughs> yeah. business focused. Uh, so it, it, it was a fun uh, topic to bring up. Um, already time to start wrapping it up. Um, one thing we always like, Harry, is have our, our guests um, suggest books, series, reads, influence, influential people that they, they, that they might follow and that they would like to recommend to us. Um, The floor is yours. Yeah, well, a couple of things spring to mind. First is um, uh, maybe not so relevant to this to this audience, but you know, who knows? I, there's my favorite book in the world is this book called A Little Life, which is this incredibly crushing, uh, slightly de well, heavily depressing book, but is it ha has incredible emotional depth. And I just went to see that on the stage um, in London. Uh, there's a the, the theatrical version of it, uh, which was done incredibly well, and it's. It touches on some very heavy topics, including abuse and suicide and, and all sorts. So not for everyone, maybe, but if you're, if you're <laughs> that way inclined, you're interested in, in, a, in an incredible, powerful read or, or watching a play, then, then I really recommend that. Um, nice. Maybe something a little bit lighter, um, uh, <laughs> which is actually hard not to be. Um, I, I just finished watching Welcome to Wrexham um, and... I, I know I'm a bit behind on that, so probably a lot of people have watched it already. But if you haven't, it's really fun. It's, it's a very different take on a different style of sports documentary um, that's really fun. I watched it with my partner, and we both we both really loved it. And um, yeah, we're interested to see season two now, obviously with their recent success. Yeah, Wrexham is quite a is quite a trend right now. But to be honest, and they were also at a conference very recently. They're doing everything right in terms of how to address the market, what, what type of content to create, show that you can create excitement against um, lower divisions, et cetera. So um, definitely one I would double down on. Yeah, um, I, I want not to like them. Um, <laughs> but it, it's almost impossible. They're, they're doing a really great They set it up, right? They score, the, the, the goalkeeper makes a penalty save at the last minute for the, you know, for the final accession to the next level. Yeah. And it, it's just too good to be true. It's almost too good, yeah. 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 Uh, Harry, thanks a lot. Um, super interesting. Uh, I personally really loved it because it's very much the topics that feel close to 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 where I think the industry is going, uh, the excitement of a startup, the challenges of creating a league. So thanks a lot for all your insights. I think it was a I think it was a great one. No, I really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website www.lastsource.io to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Corner.